guys, welcome back to the Story Podcast. We are all giddy because we've all returned from vacation and amazing travel to try to recover on sleep post Story 2016. Uh, I'm Harris III, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Sammy Harvey, who's been traveling as well. I have. Not as much to recoup from Story, but... Oh my word, can we talk about how gorgeous the place is that you went before we jump into this episode? Yeah, I went on this incredible trip um, to a Young Life camp in Malibu, Canada, um, which is the most remote location I feel like I've ever been to. I We flew into, my husband and I flew into Vancouver, mm-hmm. then took a 40-minute um, seaplane ride and landed on the water in front of this Young Life camp that typically, if you don't take a seaplane ride, like most of the campers don't take a seaplane ride. Did Brandon fly the plane? Um, no, but he did sit in... Because I could totally hear him going like, hey guys, 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 can I fly the plane? <laughs> I think he probably asked that. (laughs) He did sit up front, though, and, like, get in the guy's face and take pictures and all of that. But, um, yeah, the place was beautiful. It's probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. It was amazing. I was jealous. If you guys haven't seen pictures of this place, go check out Sammy's Instagram, Sammy Harvey Co. Yeah. Right, Sammy Harvey Co. You guys ought to check that out. Um, And you went to Disney World, the happiest place on earth. Yes. Well, I was supposed to go to South Carolina. And the hurricane came through and there's a lot of people that are still struggling, just trying Mm. to recover. There's power still out in so many places, including the resort that we were going to go to for vacation. So I did an event in South Carolina and then the next day we were like, uh, where do we go on vacation? (laughs) Because we didn't find out that our resort was closed until we were already there. Wow. So when you've got a car full of suitcases and kids and you don't (laughs) know what to do and you're looking for some magic, I guess you go to (laughs) Disney World. So we just, uh, yeah, we redirected our car and drove to Orlando and spent a few days at Disney World and... It was pretty cool. You know, story 2016, so much of our theme was inspired by that Disney quote yeah. uh, about how storytellers restore order through imagination. And so it was kind of cool to come off of that story high and then go to Disney and just kind of take in so much of what he created. And even though I've been to Disney World a bunch, um, it was different. It was different yeah. to experience Disney what World. What felt different about it to you? Um, What's that? A takeaway. You're putting me on the spot. We didn't talk about talking <laughs> yeah, about this. Yeah, I'm interested though. I kept thinking a lot about, less about the experiences that I was having on the rides uh, and watching the shows. Like I always appreciate all the creativity and details of those. I thought a lot about Walt Disney himself this time. Yeah. Like I kept sitting there thinking, I was looking up on Wikipedia the story of how they bought all the land in Orlando because, mm. you know, they needed hundreds of acres. Um, I think it's thousands of acres actually. Yeah, it's huge. Um, yeah, but they had to create like all these different corporations so they didn't tip off like all the local people to drive the price of land up because everyone knew if Walt Disney was coming to town to buy up all this land, it would mess mess up the deal. And so they like created all these different corporations and bought like multiple acres and different company names. And then finally like the word got out and he never even saw it. Disney passed away, unfortunately, before the park was finished, before Magic Kingdom, the first park was finished. But I was just thinking like the type of visionary that Disney Mm. was, and obviously I've not built anything near that, (laughs) but just taking that risk of, of doing something huge that you really believe in, that you have a vision to see fulfilled. And there's a whole bunch of other people around you that think you're crazy. And they're like, why would you invest in this? Or why would you attempt to do something like this? Yeah. Um, I was like, gosh, that's really, really cool. So I have Mm. a lot of respect for Walt Disney. He's kind of a, I don't want to say a role model because uh, I don't know enough about him personally, but sure. um, definitely as a creative. As a creative, creative yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, really amazing. So, yeah, we had a great experience. Absolutely. Um, and this year's conference was 
I would consider you a huge success. It was. You had a blast. You were hanging out backstage amazing. the whole time. Yeah, interviewing yeah. Interviewing all sorts of amazing people. Yeah, I had were, a really great time. Who are some of the highlights of Tease Us? Tell us, tell us what kind of interviews mm. our podcast listeners can look forward to. Man, we, I had some really good ones. Some of my favorites were um, Hannah Brincher was really fun for me. I knew you would love yeah, talking to yeah. her. Yeah, she's a really cool gal, and we had a great conversation. I'm excited to share that one. Also, we had a conversation with dan goods you were in the room i believe too yeah that's very interesting we've been all joking around constantly about how cool his job title is but yeah the what visual, is it again? visual strategist for nasa's jet propulsion laboratories yeah you're not like, going to want to miss that episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's amazing he's, he's just done all sorts of cool stuff so man i can't wait to hear some of these yeah uh it's gonna be awesome for yeah. sure Man, yeah, we had so much fun recording these episodes. They're a really fun conversation happening behind the scenes at 2016. I learned so much. But something that I've been really curious about, what has been something that you have taken away from Story Gathering 2016? Um, so much. Um, I think a lot, a lot of the same stuff that we heard on our surveys uh, that people filled out when they gave us feedback. Um, I think we're going to have a lot more breakout sessions in 2017. Um, People really loved those and that surprised me a little bit. Um, I knew they would love the breakout sessions that we had. I just didn't think that people would want, like they would want to go to more breakouts. And so um, that was unexpected, but we learned from that. So we're going to do a lot more of those next year. Um, I think more opportunities for people to connect with each other. They appreciated what the things that we did do, but I think people really want things like a reception or evening activities or an after party of Mm. some kind. So I think next year we're going to work really, really hard to just make sure people have opportunities to connect with each other through some social, I don't even know what to call them yet. Uh, I actually, I do know what to call them. I just, if I tell people what we're going to call them, I think it might give away our theme a little bit too much. So we're going to wait on that and keep it a surprise. Um, and a lot more diversity on stage too. We worked really hard to make this year as diverse as possible. And it was really tough. Um, but we're going to work that much harder to make, make sure there's a lot, lot more diversity on stage at story 2017. We already have dates set, um, September 21st and 22nd. That is story yeah. 2017. It's officially happening. So I'm super excited. And then about that. the new site is up too yep, with story, all this information. Yes, storygatherings.com, plural, because we are not just a single conference, annual conference anymore. So there's all sorts of events going on throughout the year from local gatherings to the workshops that we're doing in the spring, releasing information about that soon. And then, of course, the big conference in, in the fall. Uh, here in Nashville. So I'm excited. Yeah. Super, super The excited site looks really good. Too. And it has the podcast on there now. Yeah. So if you <laughs> haven't checked out the site recently, go check it out. It has the podcast. Yeah. It's just lots of, yeah. lots of basic yeah. information right now. Uh, it's about to get overhauled. The new, which sounds funny because it's a brand <laughs> new website, but it's about to get overhauled <laughs> with all the new graphics and the 2017 theme for the conference. And it's going to be really special and amazing. But instead of just talking about story, let's get to the real reason why people listen to this show. <laughs> Uh, these amazing interviews that we do with these incredible people. This week, we're sitting down with Gary Foster, who is a producer on a film called Denial, which hits theaters this week. For those who attended Story 2016, they saw the trailer for Denial, an amazing movie about a story that really matters. And that's what we're about, a story, is telling Mm -hmm. stories that matter, that influence the way people think and make them feel something in a way that they're inspired to go transform the world around them. And I think this movie has the potential to do that. You've seen clips and yeah. some footage, yeah. and we're both really, really excited about I'm this. I'm so excited. Yeah, and um, I'm excited to hear this interview, too. Yes. Because um, you did it over the phone. Yes. And um, I'm excited to hear it. 
Yeah. What you guys talked about. Gary's amazing. He's kind of a veteran producer. He's been doing this for a long time. He made 10 cup, this golf movie back in the Mm nineties. And he was talking about some of the Marvel movies that he's made. And, you know, he's a guy that at this point in his career could probably make just about anything that he wanted to. And he chose to make and tell this story. And I love some of the stuff that we talked about. I don't want to get too much into it now. I'll let the interview speak for itself. But uh, he talked a lot about how he wants to tell stories that matter, that are meaningful. And that's why story is connected to this film. I believe this is a, is a film that is really, really important. You know, a few months ago, I had a chance to spend about 10 hours in the home of my new friend Magda, who's a Holocaust survivor that spent time in Auschwitz. Wow. Um, and just sitting and talking to her for so long in her living room, listening to her tell stories. At the very end of the interview, I'll never forget, she said, before you leave Harris, I just want to say thank you. Um, it kind of caught me off guard. I'm like, thank you for, like, no, thank you for, it's like, no, thank you. Your, your, your generation and the generation after you, I don't feel like, they care about these stories being told anymore. They're being forgotten. And so thank you for your interest in making sure they're told and kept alive. Um, and that really impacted me and really struck me. It's just the sincerity in her voice. And so when films like this come along, I can't help but get behind them and champion them. So Absolutely. Um, yeah, let's jump into this interview with Gary Foster um, about producing the film Denial. such an honor to be talking to you today. Um, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about how this film, Denial, came about. So about eight years ago, uh, I was getting ready to go to work and watching the news, and they were broadcasting the General Assembly speeches from the UN, and uh, Ahmadinejad of Iran uh, went on this rant about uh, the Holocaust being a myth, and, you know, he presented this very passionate um, point of view on, on, you know, on that. And, you know, while I certainly uh, disagreed with um, what he was saying, what I really started considering was this is being broadcast around the world, certainly in Iran and other countries, and there are many people who are listening to it at, and just taking it in as fact. Um, There was no reason for them not to. Um, uh, And, you know, it really angered me that, you know, eight years later we're dealing with it in our own world, but even then that, that if someone is articulate and can package their point of view, their opinion in a certain way, they can present it and in a way that it seems truthful. And so I came to to work that day, and my partner Russ Krasnoff and I started talking, and I was just you know going off on what you know bothered me, and wouldn't it be great to find a story uh, that we could tell that would you know not be propaganda, but something that would really you know uh, communicate to people that you know facts matter. And he said, you know, funny enough, my son is applying to colleges, and we were looking at a website of Emory University last night. And on their webpage, there was an announcement of a million-dollar gift to translate Professor Deborah Lipstadt's. Uh, she has a, a website 
uh, about Holocaust denying uh, into Farsi and Arabic. And he said, we were very interested in that. And I said, wow. I, so we did a little research and found out that Deborah had written a book, uh, a number of books, but denying the Holocaust, which which is what she was, you know, which David Irving sued her about, and, and subsequently wrote a book called History on Trial, which was her story of that trial. So we read History on Trial and found it to be very intriguing and dramatic and interesting and thought, you know, this could be that story. And at the same time, we were making a film for participant media called The Soloist, and uh, Jeff Skoll and Jonathan King uh, definitely felt that it was worthy. And so we joined forces and you know, <laughs> took us <laughs> took us some time, but we, uh, you know, we we always stayed committed to it, and eventually BBC Films got involved, and they were instrumental in getting David Hare to come on and and work on the script with us. But you know that that's the origin story of it, and um, you know we, you know what what's fascinating but also troubling is that. Um, uh, you know this issue continues, and frankly, I think it, it, it's it's gotten to be a, a much more volatile problem. For, I agree, especially in America. Yeah, I all around the world. I agree, uh, and that still surprises me a little bit when I find out that there are people that are still denying it. Um, I've yeah. I've been to Dachau in Germany, and also had a chance to uh, within the past year go to Auschwitz and Birkenau, and just to visit some wow. of those surrounding camps and. Uh, something else I was working on led me to Phoenix and I had a chance to sit down with a, uh, a Holocaust survivor who spent some time in Auschwitz. Um, and she's now in her nineties yeah. and I spent a whole day at her home and it just made me passionate about making sure that I play a role, that my generation plays a role and making sure that these stories continue to be told. Um, yeah. and I, speaking of origins, you know, it, it does, it does make me angry, um, when when I hear from the deniers on this topic, and it sounds like you were angry about that as well, to the point where that almost what it's what drove your passion to be involved on this project. Do you think as for sure as both a storyteller, yeah, right. uh, no, as just as a, both a producer yeah. and a storyteller, what what role do you feel like that anger plays in the types of films that you see made? Is it you know is it the thing I want to make the art that contributes to the thing that keeps me up at night? You know what I mean. Yeah, I, for me personally, it's both. Uh, I've been lucky enough to make, you know, a number of films that, um, you know, that hit me in the gut and and are important to my soul. This being one of them, the soloist being another. Um, that's how, and it's interesting. I've I've made Marvel movies and 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 other thing, other films and other genres, but I've I've always. I've needed a way to a way to personally connect to each of those stories or characters. Um, that's just who I am. Uh, you know, I can I I know my craft. I can certainly, you know, whether on Ghost Rider, I know who to call and how to you know put together a big you know tentpole movie like that. But even for a film like that, to me, for me to understand every day what what we were doing or, or to, to feel connected to what we were doing. To me, it was about a guy who, you know, who had made a deal with the devil and had a, a, you know, personal burden, uh, that he had to figure out how to overcome that. Again, that's just how I think about my storytelling. Um, as it relates to the, to denial, 
you know, I'm I'm Jewish. I'm not uh, I'm not a uh, religious Jew. I, I'm a traditional Jew, um, but I believe in. You know, I, I have a lot of friends, and 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 our family certainly was uh, affected by World War II and the Holocaust. And uh, for for me to see that anyone would go out there and try to diminish uh, uh, the effect of what that did to a culture is is really yeah it bothers me and so yes for eight years i mean there was a period of time about a year and a half in the development process where you know we had tried uh on a script and it wasn't it wasn't as good as it that we needed it to be and you know participant was like yeah i don't know let's think but you know that's that's code for we're not going to spend any more money until we have a reason to and, you know, for a year and a half, you know, I continued to push and try to find a way uh, to to kickstart it because, you know, it's very easy for these things to fall by the wayside. And I had gotten involved with uh, BBC Films uh, on something else, this film I made called My Old Lady, and I really liked them. And, and the executive that I was working with, Joe Oppenheimer, I thought would be uh, receptive to this. And so I had sent him, I didn't send him the script, I sent him the book. I said, you know, and he came back and they got, he got passionate. So that, that did kickstart and reignite, you know, participants and, you know, that, and, you know, again, David Hare got involved and then, you know, we were, we were moving forward again. So it's, I, my philosophy, right or wrong is each time I get involved with something, I believe it has it has to get made, and some of them take a lot of time. Some of them <laughs> come quickly. <laughs> yeah, but you've got if I'm worth anything, it's my commitment to the project. Well, speak and, to that. Uh, speak to that a little bit. Why is it that you feel like some of these stories fall to the wayside by the studios, and some are made so easily? What what determines the struggle of that green light by the studio? Uh, you think? Well, I think it's I think it's a number of things. I, I you know being a producer, I think having a committed producer is a big part of it because um, look, there are people in this business, uh, you know, who are looking for the quick opportunities and, and, and how to get movies made. Um, and if something looks like it's dying, it's not worth their time to spend any more, you know, spend any more time on it. And so they go off to the next project that has uh, a better chance. And I, I'm not going to say there's, it, that that's a terrible thing to do. It's just a reality. Um, and by the way, you know, our company has a number of projects. And, you know, yeah, you sit there and, and you have to prioritize. But I think that especially a film like this, this is not an obviously commercial film, this is something that, you know, as, as I said, was something very personal to me and, and Russ. And, you know, we felt hugely committed to get it done. And so every day, whether it was 15 minutes or an hour, spending time thinking about, okay, what am I not, what, who, who am I not thinking about? What can I do? Who can I talk to? Uh, that's what you have to do. And ultimately, if, if we're successful as we were and David, you know, we were lucky enough to get one of the great writers in the world to, to, to join us. Well, that script is what got everybody back, you know, on board because it's that script that got 
the talent. It's that script that Mick, ha- Mick Jackson and Rachel Weiss and all the other actors, uh, you know, got excited about. And so that gets the financiers excited too, because now they feel they have a, a movie to make. Um, so it's really, I don't mean it to, to sound self-serving, but it's really my job to push, 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 and, you know, try to attach the right people that, you know, gets the material, you know, in, into the best place. And, and I know I'm being long-winded here, but it, <laughs> no, it really great. is about, it's really about the material. It, you know, even, you know, it, it's always, especially in movies like this, it's about the script. If the script is good enough, if the script is compelling and the characters are dimensional and interesting and the subject is important, you'll get people, you'll find, the people will find it or you'll find them and, and introduce them to it. Yeah, um, I think a lot that, of times, I think a lot of times producers don't get the credit that they deserve for being storytellers. You know, I think sometimes there's this this perspective that oh, the the writer whoever wrote the screenplay they're the true storyteller, and then the actors are the ones who bring that story to life, and the director plays a role in telling the story, and producers are there as the business guys to shake things up and make things happen. But I think so often the role that producers are playing is they're the first ones to tell the story and you've got to tell the story in an engaging enough way so that the story ends up getting told yeah. by all those other talented people. Completely agree. I think, you know, at least half of my job is creative. Um, you know, I'm a traditional producer. I, I'm not, you know, there, are, you know, I, I, I care, as I said, I care about each of the projects I'm involved with. I spend a lot of time thinking about why they're movies creatively and engaging with the you know director and writer and cast, uh, I'm on set every day, um, and it's not just you know looking at the watch trying to figure out if we're going to make the day. It's really there you know digging deep with and supporting the director and the actors um, in their work. Um, I care about that. I you know I come from a theater background. Uh, as I develop scripts, I I really. I give a lot of credit to the folks uh, who taught me. It, it, you know, it's about the script. It's always about the script. And um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I, look, of course I believe. I, I, I think the best producers uh, are not just deal makers. that's for sure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Tell us a little bit about why a narrative film instead of a documentary on a subject like this. Um. Uh, you know, we we always saw it as a film. Um, never thought of it as um, as a documentary. Um, just felt that there was a good story to tell and that it could be dramatized. Um, you know, didn't spend much time talking about it as a documentary. We we did talk a little bit at some point in, in one of the low moments about well maybe we should make it for for you know which would be great for HBO or 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 Netflix or something, but it still was always going to be narrative storytelling. We we wanted the film to be about Deborah Lipstadt and her battle, and you know we we were really compelled by the fact that this very uh, smart, opinionated, direct, strong woman had to silence herself in order to win the case. Um, we felt felt that to be you know you know juicy character stuff and. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so, you know, we thought it was a great role for an actress. Uh, also the role, you know, all the other key roles, but 
Richard Rampton, the, the you know the the role that Tom Wilkinson plays. We thought that was an interesting role too, because here here's a guy who was a great barrister, not not Jewish, not necessarily you know organically uh, connected to the story the way Deborah is or was, and you know he had to go through the journey to you know understand why it meant so much to her and why she was in such pain and 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 why she was so angry about the process so that again that that creates some great drama Uh, for sure sure. you know we thought we thought yeah we thought it was a movie (laughs) it's a great one for sure yeah talk talk to me a little bit if you if you can about maybe some of those seasons of temptation that you felt to, to settle, I guess, for lack of a better words to, you know, instead of doing a huge theatrical release, maybe we should just make this for HBO or maybe we should just go back a little bit. I would imagine as a producer, there's a lot of times in your career where you've, you've felt that temptation to settle. How do you, how do you push through that for the sake of making the film that you know in your mind and your heart needs to be made? Well, with respect to HBO, I, making a film for HBO is not settling. I think they make real, you know, quality material. But in my mind, trying to make it a a a a film, um, you know, when we got to those moments, it was really about, you know, the the key one was before you know David Hare was involved in trying to figure out how we could get a quality writer. Who would make a difference to engage in the material um and you know so we you know we made our list and we checked availabilities and you know again the bbc was very helpful and because they they deal with these folks a lot and they 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 knew who you know who might respond to it and you know so we we kept grinding um you know and once you know once david got on board um it was clear that you know it was going to be a film. Um, I mean, his, his, even his first draft of the script was, you know, was a compelling movie. And so, but it was really in the in those in those other moments. Yeah, it's, you know, you you sit there and you go, ah, you know, yeah, maybe HBO would do this. The the thing on this particular pro- project is that prior to our involvement, before Deborah had written her book. HBO had heard about the trial just on in the news. And so there was some discussion without Deborah, you know, they probably would have had to acquire her life rights, but there was some discussion years years ago about making it as an HBO film and uh, you know, I wasn't there so I don't know exactly why it didn't transpire, but um uh you know, I just I don't know. I'm just committed. I just knew that, you know, even though Russ and I would sit there, we'd say, no, 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 no. It's a film. It's a film. It's a film. We just have to keep find. We have to find the way. And it was about trying to, yeah, as I said, it was about trying to find the reason to get people to say, okay, it's worth putting a few more bucks into it. That's really what happens. Um, and David was the difference maker. Um, you know, yeah. What would you say to maybe other producers that are out there listening with they have a few less stories under their belt, you know, maybe they're starting out their career regardless of what age they're in and they they're in that moment where they're ready to give up and settle. Well, any advice? Don't give up if you yeah, if you don't if you believe in something, you've got to fight fight fight. I you know, and make your list and really think about 
two things. Who, you know, our job is to match the right people with the project. But it's also about, and you said this earlier in the conversation, it's also about honing your pitch. What is it that makes you excited about the project? Because if you're excited and if you can articulate that and communicate that, others, there's a chance that others will feel it. You know, in the best definition of the term, we are salesmen. But especially with movies, you know, like like this that are not Hollywood studio films, that are independent movies that need, you know, need a, a creative team to come together. You have to be the one to set the tone, to clearly define the message and be able to communicate it to not only, you know, because you're probably not going to get to the writer or director uh, directly. You're probably going to have to go through an agent. So you, 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 you have to make sure that in those two minutes <laughs> that you have on the phone or the five minutes in the office that you hook them early and you make it really clear why this is something that should be a film and why their client needs to pay attention. So I, I, we spend a lot of time talking about how, how we're going to communicate what the movie is and can be or should be. That's a big part of it. Because if you don't, if you can't do that, if it's just like, hey, read the book, um, you know, your odds go down. Because a lot of times they send the book to coverage or they don't read the book and then you call them and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly it's not that important. Yeah. So a screenplay is written by David Hare, who is directed by Mick Jackson. Is there is there a time yep. or a story you can tell me by, about either one of those two guys that where you realized that they got it and their passion for the film came alive? Well, I, uh, I can do one for both. So when we gave uh, David the book, um, before he agreed to, to write, he wanted to do his own research. Um, he was, you know, adamant from the beginning that if he was going, what was exciting to him and also the challenge to him was um, if, we're going to do this it has to be truthful it has to be we can't we can't create fiction because that's what david irving did and so he went and met with all the principals uh anthony julius richard rampton richard evans and others uh he flew to atlanta and sat with uh deborah and sat in on her class and met some of her friends and then he went away and we were waiting and what appeared uh we week or two later was a 25 30 page document sort of uh an outline but it was like what what would i think what the title was if this if this happened to you and it was directed to deborah and it was basically his you know treatment on what the movie should be um it was really compelling and it was you know all about so you teach classes and then this this comes this happens and then suddenly you're on a plane and you're in london and uh, you know that's how he went through the process and he said to us and i think he said this publicly um 80 of the time he spends working on a screenplay is not writing it's thinking it's it's putting the puzzle together it's figuring out who you know who the characters are uh, and how they interact and and he he this was part of his process to to get him ready and he was very 
clear from the beginning that if he did this, it was going to have to be something that Deborah signed on to and believed in. He didn't want to do it without her blessing. She was very, you know, she had a couple notes, but she was very pleased by that outline. And awesome. and David, David went after it. I mean, he, you know, he said recently at, at the beginning of the film, it says based on a true story. He said that's a lie. It is a true story. And he was really challenged and loved the fact that he had to work within the parameters of what really happened. All the dialogue in the courtroom in the script comes from the transcripts of the movie, of the trial. There's not one invented word. Every line that David Irving speaks in the video uh, clips that are throughout the film are exactly replicated from video clips that he uh, had, you know, had done. And, you know, for a writer, that's a challenge because you, you can sit there and imagine some really juicy scenes. And, you know, I've heard people say, you know, where's the scene at the end where she stands up and makes her impassioned speech and suddenly she wins the trial? Well, that didn't happen. So there was no way it was going to be in the movie. But that's, you know, again, from from a creative standpoint, that makes it exciting to figure out how to put it together in a way where uh, it's still dramatic and compelling without creating fiction. Um, and God knows there's plenty of movies that have come out, very good movies, that are based on historical events that, you know, use fiction and, and you know, people criticize them for it. Um you know, our our mission was to be the film that they could they they couldn't make that argument, and I think we achieved it. And on the mix mix side of it, so you know, we had gotten a draft that we all liked, and we had made we had begun to speak uh, with directors. And you know, Mick knows this. Mick, you know, was not somebody on our short list, but we got a call from his agent saying, "Would you at least?" would you spend 20 minutes with him? He's very passionate about this. So Russ and I went to have breakfast with him in Santa Monica and he started and didn't stop for 45 minutes. And he had thought everything through was very articulate, very clear, very passionate, talked about how he was going to, you know, bring, you know, certain cinematic style to the film. Um, Just was really impressive. And so we, we, put him in front of participant in BBC and uh, he won the job and you know really it was exciting that it was somebody who came to us who you know couldn't live without being a part of the film and uh, you know he's worked he's worked really hard and very proud of the work that he and David did together I love that he shot uh, a little over 40 days I guess around London Atlanta and then in some of the museums around Auschwitz and Birkenau is there a memory or a story that you have in mind where Mick's passion was really showcased during the filming process? Yeah. Um, well, certainly, you know, we, we filmed for a day and a half uh, at Auschwitz-Birkenau, which was a very emotional and powerful experience for everybody. Um, the challenges uh, of that uh, were huge in that, you know, we had a very good relationship with uh, the administration of, of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Museum and Foundation. Um, Piotr Savinsky, who's, who heads it, was understood. You know, the, the the concept that this was a movie about truth, and and that if we didn't somehow figure out a way to film there, we, you know, we would be creating fiction. So he worked within the rules of of the organization, and and you know 
gave us a few gave us a few uh, little you know gave us some help so that we could do it um all the scenes with the actors were shot outside the perimeter of the of the of the former Nazi camp um but we were able to bring cameras inside and you know not only film you know wide shots and details of 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 the ruins of the camp but he did let us put a camera or two inside to shoot out so that we get some you know we get some reverses and you know different angles on the actors outside the fence um but that still didn't give us the opportunity you know we, what happened when they when they made their visit there in in the mid 90s is you know they walked around the camp and then they did look at the ruins of crematorium too um but if we couldn't bring actors into the camp how are we going to do that and so mick uh worked very carefully with uh our team and we des- we built a set piece uh just outside of london of the roof of crematorium 2 and the stairs and you know carefully uh with the film that we shot or the you know what we shot inside Birkenau um we were able to stitch together um a sequence that I think seamlessly shows them, you know, going through the steps and the discussion that they had in the mid 90s as they walked through you know around crematorium 2 and onto the roof and um he did it with class and he did it carefully and we did it in a way uh, that the museum could, you know, would be proud and not feel like we were um, treading on, on on a difficult situation, and and that was really mixed work, and was really, you know, very pleased at, at how it came out. That's awesome. So working with Rachel Weiss, Tom Wilkinson, obviously an incredible experience. Um, was there yeah. was there a time that you saw their passion for this come alive and? I would imagine a lot of actors have stories, especially as experienced as they are, where sometimes it's a gig <laughs> and sometimes it's really special to them because uh, because of their passion for how meaningful a story is. Um, did you have that experience with them? All of them. Uh, you know, um, you know I, Rachel and I built a really strong uh, collaborative relationship. Um, she and I talked daily obviously on set but even before work and after work she was she's a hugely committed actress um certainly wanted to do you know do deborah well but really you know was able to look at the entire film and um you know she not only you know talking about her role but was just very just like a partner in going through this process together and um I was really impressed and um you know even as we you know finished and you know as we were working in uh, in the editing and post production on the film you know she was we we would be in touch and you know a movie like this and a role like this it's you know it's not just 42 days thank you very much let me know when it's finished um you know and she you know she comes from a family her parents were both refugees from uh eastern europe from um, hungry, um, and so she has personal feelings about the, you know, this kind of a story and what it means. Um, so it was, it was a just a great relationship, and I was just so proud of all the work that she did. And you know, 
Tom and Tim Spall and Andrew Scott and the rest of the cast, you know, all really good. You know, Tom's a different kind of actor. Tom is a is a is a pro. He knows his lines. He doesn't he doesn't want to talk about. It. He just comes to work and he does what he does and does it brilliantly. And uh, you know, I just found myself sitting back and watching, going, "Wow." Um, you know, Tim Spall, you know, somewhat similar to Tom, but for this role because it was such a unique character and a difficult one to to portray, he. He spent a lot. Of, he did a lot of research, but he spent a lot of time, you know, by himself, just trying to, you know, figure out how to play the exterior part of this character, and then also understand, you know, the humanity of what made this man. You know, so, you know, he has an he, as he says, he has an obligation to. He is a human being to play the human side of it as as well as the exterior evilness of what David Irving, you know, is about. But it was, you know, they were, it was everybody, you know, I don't think you get involved in a film like this unless you're, you know, you're really committed to the story. And the challenge for each of them, especially David and, and Tom, or uh, Tom and Tim, was that in the courtroom scenes, they couldn't very, you know, they couldn't improvise. The lines had to be exact. Um, and so they had to, you know, craft their performances knowing that, you know, if the script supervisor said, hey, you missed, you know, this word, that they'd have to go back and redo it. And and so they, they really committed the words to memory early so that they could, you know, spend their time thinking about the actual nonverbal performance, uh, which, I, again, I found fascinating and, and you know, some actors that could hand, you know that could handcuff them, but they they again they thought saw it as a challenge and were able to make it work, and I think they did a fantastic job. Yeah, so good. Their performances were incredible in the screener that I saw. Yeah. I'm just blown away by everything about the film. Obviously, you you were in a, a season where I think many would consider you a veteran producer, uh, but yet I think we're all still learning. Is there is there something about this project? that stands out to you that you learned from? First of all, you know, I mean, you always trust the script, but I really learned a ton about staying, you know, staying true to the script because a lot of times, you know, sit there and go, that's a good scene, but what if we tried this? And, you know, the actors on set say, you know, if I change this line or if I go this way, that could be interesting. And we say, yeah, why don't you give it a shot? You know, you never, it's worth a try. But that was not acceptable here. That was not something that we were going to allow to happen. And 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 so it was really it was it we had to be disciplined. And and you know, again, not all movies. Well, well, you know, I do. will have this kind of situation, but it was comforting in some way to know that um, I didn't have to sit there every day and think about does that seem good enough, or what if you know? I wonder if we should, you know, change change the section of it. It just never entered my mind because it was not possible. So it. it you know, I guess one of the things to learn is when you're making films like this, you know, hire the best damn writer in the world and just <laughs> get, you know, when you get the script right, you just say, great, that's it. It's locked. 
were done um, and defend it. Uh, it was easy to defend, but it was, but it's not, it's not normal um, because directors and actors tend to want to, you know, play and and bring bring some things to it. I mean, they certainly did in rehearsal, and David sat with them, and if there were some questions, he he addressed them. But once once rehearsals were done and we were on set, that was it. I, I found that really, you know, um, exhilarating. Yeah, it sounds like there's a the constant theme I'm hearing for this particular project is just fighting off the temptation to to exactly. to the temptation to make or to not make what you feel like in your heart needs to be made and to not tell the story any other way than the way that you feel like it needs to be told and to honor that integrity. And it sounds like there were multiple seasons throughout the process from, from getting the film greenlit, getting it funded all the way to even the creative process of, of those 41 days of filming. It seems like there was a lot of temptation to settle and you guys did it. Um, I think that's amazing. There's a lot of, a lot of films out there that have been made, quote unquote, based on a true story that didn't honor that integrity for the sake of trying to be more dramatic. And there's something beautiful, I think, in what you guys did. Well, I appreciate it. It was it was our goal. And, um, you know, I, you know, restraint was a big word that we we used. Hmm. Um, the last thing we wanted to do, all of us, was make a Hollywood version of this important story. Uh and and you know whether it was in the development process or in you know filming or post production, um, you know Howard Shore, who's an amazing composer, um, you know even you know he completely understood. I mean, you sit there and you look at the Auschwitz sequence and you think about what kind of lush music you could create to you know to lay on top of it, and he would and he understood what our goal was and he said no 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 he says my job is to be there to support it but not to become the dominant sound uh, in that sequence um and you know whether it was you know acting or composing or editing or cinematography uh we all understood that our job was to was to you know it is that fine line you you talked asked, asked about documentary filmmaking it's that fine line between being you know a naturalistic film and um but a and a movie and you know Russ and I had numerous conversations throughout this process about can we push it here should we push it here uh you know yeah, restraint is is hugely important for us and what we're trying to do. But uh, God, this—if we utz this, it would make it maybe push the emotions a little. And those—it's those are hard conversations to have because you know there's you could you could argue for either side of it, but ultimately we we felt that we needed to you know we we didn't need to be seen none of us needed to be seen in this film that the that the story was strong enough the characters were strong enough and that the that you know the the issue of truth versus lies had to at the end of the day carry it and so we we got out of the way you know in some ways to allow that to you know yeah to elevate and there's so much, so much to learn from that. There's a lot of storytellers out there listening that I think will be inspired by your your willingness to stick to that integrity. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just really, really cool. 
do you in closing do you feel like uh do you feel like there's a there's a book that most stands out to you that you've read um that stands out as a favorite or maybe something that shaped you as a producer or the way that you approach storytelling a fictional book uh either either or, one uh, fiction or uh, nonfiction. I read a book years ago. I was I was a producer, but I I really love this book. It was about Samuel Goldwyn. <laughs> uh, and uh, Scott Berg wrote it, I think. And it was a great story about this immigrant Eastern European who came to New York and, you know, was one of the great producers uh, of early Hollywood and just the journey. And he wasn't that educated, but he had a passion for film and, you know, built an amazing empire because he believed in the art form and believed in what it could be. I found that that book to be really inspiring to me when I read it. Um, uh, I just, I, I think people, the most successful people in this business um, at their core are great storytellers and want to be involved in that part of the process. Um, it's completely different from denial, but when I made the three films for Marvel years ago, there was a young guy named Kevin Feige who was, uh, you know, a low-level PA, you know, story guy at Marvel, and Avi Arad, who ran the, co- the company at the time, said to me, you know, I think this was on Daredevil, you know, I'm going to have him be around. I want him to learn. I want him to understand how how it worked and how producing a film works. And so Kevin, Kevin and I became friends, and we went through this process together on both that film and and Ghost Rider and Electra. But he, uh, but what I realized early on, Kevin knew those comics. He knew the stories. He knew the characters. He knows knew the motivations and the origins of all of them. And he was passionate about it. I mean, that's what that's why he was there. It, he wasn't just a you know a smart you know USC graduate who wanted to learn how to be a producer. He loved comic books, and now he is the head of Marvel. Of Marvel, he's you know, and it's the reason he is is because he cares deeply about that universe, and he knows he knows it. So you know, doesn't matter what genre, just you know. It, it, it's about you know it's really about digging in and and being being a creative person and being somebody who's curious and committed to it yeah so i um that's what i try to do and and the and the exciting thing about each of these movies is that for a period of time you can immerse yourself and learn as much as you can about it and i you know right or wrong i put myself in a bubble and and that's what i think about for the period of time we're making the film and you know I have other people that can focus on other things but I can't I like to just immerse myself in it I find it very rewarding are you are you constantly reading fiction books looking for the next story Uh, that needs to be told yeah of course you know scripts and books and and things but you know or just like I know I I uh I produced the movie Tin Cup, and uh, that came about because Ron Shelton and John Norville and I were just loved golf and wanted to tell a story about golf. And we were spending a day uh, after playing around talking about a golfer named Chip Beck who had been in contention at the Masters. This was in the mid-'90s, and he was on, on 
15th hole at Augusta and had a shot if he had just gone for the green and he played it safe and it ended up taking him out of out of the chance for winning and we started talking about god you know it'd be great to do a story about somebody who never never lays up who just goes for it not only on the golf course but in life and what does that mean if you're just going you know you're you're going for it in, in various ways and and we came up with this character tin cup and and it was because we you know it came out of our lives so i to me yes books i also spend a lot of time just what interests me what am i what am i thinking about what do i you know what do i want to spend my time uh developing um it, you know we all can read books and we all get scripts submitted to us but the things that are personal are we we own and i'd rather be in i'd rather bet on those than you know hoping that somebody's going to call me and say hey read this not that i don't do that but yeah it i don't i don't find that to be the primary source yeah yeah i was going to finish with a question but it sounds like you already answered it one of the one of the things we always ask guests on the show towards the end is just you know what your creative inspiration is how do you find your inspiration especially when you're feeling like you're in some sort of creative rut uh, but I think you answered that in the last question. It sounds like you just you're you're looking to tell stories that resonate with you, that connect with your soul, and just things that you yourself yeah. are passionate about. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, well, this is certainly well, good. This is certainly one of those films, um, and it hits theaters nationwide October twenty first. Is that correct? Twenty first. Yeah, we yeah. opened uh, this past weekend, New York and L A. and It'll be nationwide on the 21st. Yeah, and, uh, well, it's a film that matters. I really appreciate your interest interest in it. Oh, man, ever since I sat in home with Magna, that survivor that I told you about in Phoenix, I just became yeah. passionate about this story. And there's there's some there's so many stories out there that are fun to tell and that are fun to be told. And then there there's another level of stories that are out there that need to be told um, that are in danger of being forgotten. And I feel like this this hits that that category. So thank you for your passion for, for fighting to, to make sure this story is told, not just that it's told, but it's told in the way that it needs to be told. We, we really appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate, you know, your interest and in, in the time today. Thank you for, uh, thank you for getting on the, on the horn. Yeah, you bet. That was an amazing interview. I told it you it was. was amazing. Wow. That really, was really cool. Any highlights for you? Yeah. Man, I think my big takeaway is that I am just so impressed by the entire team's commitment to the integrity of the story. Mm. That's so powerful. I feel like today, a lot of these um, based on a true story type of films um, can get manipulated a little bit to build up more of a final scene where the sun is shining yeah 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 it just becomes this complete happy ending and that doesn't always happen in true stories and so i really appreciate their commitment to staying yeah me too me too i love the part where he was talking about i can't remember if it was the writer or the director but where they were watching you know one of the first edits and it came up and said based on a true story and he said that's a lie it is a true story. It's not based on a true story. Mm. It is a true story. I'm like, that's really cool. I love that. So yeah, I agree with you. Just the integrity that they, they took as filmmakers. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was super, I, I, I was super impressed by his approach 
to producing in general. And I appreciated how he said that producers are storytellers as well. Cause I think a yeah. lot of times producers get a bad rep. I think they're, they're often like the business people, like the people who get the deals done. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people forget that producers on the front end, they have to learn how to cast the vision and tell the story in such a way that other people believe in it and help them make that film. Um, and so I love that. I think he represented producers in Hollywood really, really well. I also loved how he responded to my question about why, why did you make this a narrative based film instead of a story, instead of like a documentary? Um, I think that's really insightful for us because documentaries are obviously really, really important. I'm in the middle of making a documentary right now and I watch a ton of documentaries on Netflix and there's so many documentaries that have, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for that have disrupted industries. Like you think of, Hmm. you know, when all the food documentaries started coming out. So documentaries could be powerful, but you, you can get this sense from him that he believes that there was something powerful about telling a narrative story and that it had the chance to influence and move people and change the way they think. Um, and so I really appreciated that part of the conversation. It's just really good. I, I feel like I could, I want to like go spend the day with that guy and just <laughs> yeah. download as much of his experience as I can. <laughs> yeah. So uh, story uh, as a community, we really want to support this film. We, again, I keep saying it over and over again, but we really believe like this is a story that matters. Uh, and check out the trailer online. We'll be tweeting about it and posting more information about it so you guys can get there easily. And um, I mean, this, it's a really amazing cast. Rachel Weiss, Tom Wilkinson, Timothy Spall, Andrew Scott. These are great people. If you don't know their names, you're going to recognize their faces. Um, and it was directed by Mick Jackson, written by David Hare. Just a really great group of people involved in this. Um, thank you to Participant Media for being willing to support and tell stories that really matter. Uh, so check out the film Hits Theaters this week. Starting next week, we have Sammy Harvey backstage at Story 2016 <laughs> interviewing. You know what? Let's say it for a surprise. You'll have to tune in next week. <laughs> As always, I'm Harris Third, And I'm Sammy Harvey. Thank you so much for listening to this little story podcast we've been doing. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>